Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. A simple life is over. I want to live in an old folks' home. This is a this is a, a big day, Andy. Is it? Big day. Because we, this is one of our grand crossover episodes. You might call this a very special episode of VSE. Hmm. Yes. Right. Yes. Because we're crossing over. This is uh, a simple life. We're talking about a simple life that was released in 2011. 11, 10 year anniversary. It is also a film directed by Anne Hui. That's correct. Which kicks off our next series, Anne Hui. Kicks off. With a little break in between because, you know, we have a Christmas episode that we're Oh, right. In. <laughs> we do have the Christmas episode coming up. That's right. I, I yes, did forget do. about that. And Hui was not involved in Arthur Christmas, as far as, far as we know. <laughs> as far as we maybe, know. Maybe inspired by. <laughs> maybe. You know, maybe that's it. Maybe she was the inspiration. Yeah. That's exactly right. I'm sure that's what happened. Uh, and so we're we're doing this and, and Hui thing. So with with all due respect to Arthur Christmas... Uh, how'd we end up with this particular movie? 
Um, uh, you know, Anne Hui is a director that I, I think caught her eye as far as the types of stories that she tells the, uh, you know, she's a Hong Kong filmmaker who has been directing films uh, since the late seventies. And I mean, has, uh, you know, 30 films under her belt that she has uh, directed uh, all, or at least part of um, in some that were like, uh, uh, you know, she directed a segment types of films, um, you know, very busy filmmaker. And uh, I think that we looked at the types of films that she told. We, we read through the list, the, the, um, the, the tricky thing is honestly, not a lot of her films were available. And so as we were looking to films to include in the Anne Hui series, we kind of ran into a thing where we're like, okay, well, let's let's see which ones are available because a lot of them sound really interesting, but just aren't readily accessible over here in the states, which is frustrating. And so we found some that that were, and kind of read through the different synopses of those, and and we landed on a number of them, including this one that came out in 2011. And uh, because of that, we thought this would be a good crossover episode between our 10-year anniversaries series and the Anhui series. Even though, you know, we're not, I mean, this is you know, essentially going to be out of order because after this, we'll jump back in time and then we'll walk through some of her earlier films before we, uh, mm-hmm. before we end that series. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 she's a filmmaker who I really didn't know much about, but as I was reading about her, I just found she sounded like the, the, a type of storyteller that I can really enjoy somebody who tells uh, more intimate, quiet types of stories. And um, yeah, so I, I thought she would be a good uh, fit for our conversations this season. I uh, think that you liked this movie uh, very much. I think that you, it is exactly what you just said, piqued your interest, quiet, small story. Uh, I think you watched this movie with, rapt attention at their relationship and uh i also think you're going to give special uh special attention to our man andy lau i think you really liked his performance in particular uh that that's what i think you thought of this movie now where do you put it on the star rating i think you're going to give it a four i I will just say he does have a great name lau you're right it's fascinating (laughs) what do you think i thought of this movie your turn. I think <laughs> I think you found it to be an interesting story about uh, kind of what it's like in this period of life. About uh, you know when you're close to the end, and then also the way that the system treats you. And so I think that you found it interesting. I don't think you were as enthralled by the film. Um, and the, the quieter type of story, but I think that you enjoyed it well enough. Enjoyed it well enough. I think that's, wait a minute. Yeah, it was on that, on the poster. I enjoyed it well (laughs) enough. Roger Ebert. (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, this film was not rated when it was released here in the States. And I, you know, I think if anything, it would be rated, uh, you know, PG it's, it, there are some, elderly people being taken to the hospital and things like that but it's pretty mild film people die quietly mostly off screen yes you want to watch this movie and help us out well if you see an apple or an amazon link to this movie in the show notes you can click on it and it will take you right to their site 
and you can rent or buy the movie. When you do this, we get a little piece in return. Win-win. Check out the merch. You know, as you listen to this, it's the holiday season. You know, maybe you need to pick up a last-minute gift for somebody. You should head over to truestory.fm slash TNRmerch and uh, pick up a logo something or other or uh, a shirt with an animal on it. It might even be a cat with no ears by the time you hear this. I don't know. Could be. Uh, we're, we're kind of trying to come up with more and more of these uh, merch opportunities uh, with every series that we do. So truestory.fm slash TNRmerch. We are featuring audio reviews from you, our dear listener. Just send us your 30-second audio file to reviews at truestory.fm. As soon as you watch the film, we just might showcase your voice on the show. Get them in quick, though. We record early, so the sooner you get your clip in, the more likely it will end up in the podcast. Uh, Again, that's reviews at truestory.fm. And if you're wondering where you can see the movies that we're talking about in the upcoming weeks, you know, so you can get that review in on time... Head over to our Letterboxed HQ page at thenextreel.com slash Letterboxed, and uh, you can see our, all of our watch lists. You can see all the series breakdowns that we're doing. You can see the movies that are coming up uh, in our schedule and uh, get them on your own watch list so you can uh, get your reviews in on time. And while you're there, you can sign up for a pro or patron membership if you just are loving Letterboxed and you want to remove ads and support a fantastic team, get 20% off. Just visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox. It'll take you straight to the sign-up page where you can. It'll already apply that 20% off uh, discount, and it works for renewals as well. And hey, if you are looking to show your support of this independent podcast during the holiday season, what better way than by signing up to become a member? Have you heard of Patreon? We basically are using Patreon, but it's their other platform called Memberful, which integrates the membership platform right into our own site. You just go to our website, click to become a member, and essentially you're becoming a patron of our podcast. And we'd love it if you would consider becoming a member either month to month or at the annual rate and get all sorts of goodies. So many goodies. Members get access to every episode. Uh, They also get access to bonus episodes. There are so many bonus episodes. There's a member bonus episode that fills a gap from one of our series. Members get to vote on what we're talking about. Members get wrap-up episodes called retakes that that we do at the end of every series. I mean, I can't even, I can't even catalog the bonus episodes in this ad read. There's just too many. There are not words to describe how many episodes we have that are bonus. That's right. Just head to truestory.fm slash TNR membership, and you can learn more about our different membership tiers. The most it'll cost is $5 a month or $55 a year. <sighs> wow. This movie. There are so many things going on in this movie, and it seems it's so deceptively simple for me, a simple life, uh, or deceptively complex is what I meant to say there. This movie, a simple <laughs> life. It was deceptively simple. It was simple. deceptively simple, seems, even though it, it seemed like a Sherlock Holmes <laughs> mystery, but wow, was it simple. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's such a relationship thing. It's really, I mean, principally centers around these two people. They are not related. She uh, was the the family made and caretaker for 60 years 60, 60 years. years that's so many years she, what did she start when she was seven the, well that's what it, was so funny because <laughs> just to interrupt real quick but somebody asks because well, he's posing as her godson in this place just to make it easier for them to talk about and and <laughs> 
<laughs> he says she was, yeah, she, she was with us for 60 years. And they're like, how old is she? At least seventy. <laughs> so like, did, did he? Did she start when she was ten? Like, even like, <laughs> apparently he thinks so. Well, and that is actually a funny angle since you brought it up. Like, he's he, they do the the pose as godmother thing, but then later he takes her to the premiere of one of his movies and he calls her his aunt. And I think that is th- that's a really interesting cultural statement that I just I don't understand completely. This whole idea of feigning family relationships to like ease social demands. I didn't understand why godmother and aunt here were were better as relationships than she was my nanny. You know, she was my caretaker. Well, because you, I does don't that think, make any sense? I, I Do don't think that she she was in terms of how they describe it in the film. They've never they never say that. They say she's the maid. And that's like the only word in the film, in the translation, at least, that we read in English that they ever call her is the maid, even though she essentially is kind of a nanny. Uh, But I do think what that leads to is not only this discussion about uh, kind of getting old and, uh, you know, caretakers and and you know, taking care of the different people in your life, whether they're the young child that you're taking care of or when they get old, then you're taking care of them as an old person, but also this class structure, because as the maid, she is never viewed as anything more than just the maid. And I think that is part of the reason why he says, oh, uh, yeah, or somebody says, is this your godson? And they're like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, I'm her, I'm her godson. Because no one, would ever expect someone to take care of their maid like that. No one would ever expect to bring their maid to a premiere. Um, even if it was your nanny, it probably still would be something that people would kind of look, you know, look at side-eyed, you know? And so uh, I think there's an interesting element there uh, about this family and really not just about the family, but really about him and how he learned to get past a lot of that as as he continued taking care of her in the film. Right. And and I think that's actually really interesting because as we get to the end, do you feel like he's learned anything about his uh, about exactly that angle? Like do you feel like he has come to terms with exactly how important his relationship was with her in the end? Uh because I I was just sort of musing on his arc. He plays such a a stoic character, uh, Andy Lau, as Roger. He uh, like it's it's often hard to get a read on him. And so charting his emotional sort of development, his arc over the course of this movie, um, you know, do you ever get a sense that that he's a different guy in the end than he was in the beginning? Uh, It's tricky. It's tricky. I mean, yes, I do think so. But I think there are elements that make it a little harder to read. Yeah. I mean, if you you judge just his first scene with her, right, where he doesn't speak to her at all, and uh, she serves him food, and then he leaves without saying goodbye, like, okay. Doesn't say thank you. All he says is, you you know what I really want is ox tongue. Cook yeah. me up some ox tongue, you know, and, yeah. and like that's that's kind of his attitude is just it, I mean, yeah, it's it's very much, you know, she's the servant and he treats her as such. And even when he comes home and he forgot his keys and he is ringing the doorbell like I have never heard anyone ring a doorbell so rudely yeah, so in my rudely. life, uh, you know, but of course she had collapsed. 
And I think, yes, I mean, he definitely does make a turn and he does kind of welcome her and they create this relationship and this bond and he stops looking at her just as a servant and treats her as a family member and they they have this connection and that obviously they did have when he was a kid, you know, but it's like a kid and somebody who's taking care of them that you don't really view that way yet. And and then, but as he got older, obviously it just became you're the maid you you cook and that's what that's your job right and that's what that's what i i wanted to see him demonstrate more if there was if there was a shortcoming in in that performance and i have to say i really like i mean obviously i like andy lau i mean we've liked andy lau for a long time um and he's an incredibly popular uh, actor in in uh, in terms of hong kong performances he's been in like hundreds of things he plays this so tight uh, that it's it is, I think, hard. And what I wanted to see was some demonstration that at the end of her life, he was a, a bit of a different person uh, at that funeral, at, you know, at that transition. Like, I, I felt like there was a there was a real opportunity and I didn't I didn't get it. I didn't get it. And maybe that's the point. Like, maybe I'm never really going to get it because, you know, there is such nuance to this performance and to, you know, needing to have some a, a deeper cultural understanding of like Chinese family relationships that I don't have, um, you know, that that is is sort of in the way um, of, of truly getting a getting a sense of what's going on here. Yeah, there were a, a couple things there that um that i wasn't that i felt i i guess i wasn't sure how i read that he did change over the course of the film i certainly felt like there was a transition for him even if it was kind of a subtle one even if it was i mean it wasn't designed to be a maudlin sort of film like they're not no 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 no. yeah you know tearing up over each other at the end of the film or anything like that but we get this this quiet you know quiet reflection throughout the film of kind of him and everything. And I mean, he even starts, you know, my, my impression of the open of the film when he's getting on the train and stuff and we hear his voiceover, he's talking about, you know, I, she was in my life up to two years ago. So I, I felt like, you know, th- this is him having moved on past all of that. And yes. he's just kind of reflecting on this whole thing. Agreed. Well, and, and I, I think that there is, you know, there's, if, if I'm going to read that, and I think this is an important piece for me and just in how I watch the movie, this the movie centers his transformation centers much more in what he does, not how he does it. Right. Like, as you say, it's not a maudlin film, but everything that he does demonstrates some connection to, you know, to her, to Otto um, in a way that is growing. Right. You know, taking on renovating the apartment, taking on bringing family in to to see her having the I, I, I really loved the scene where he um, gets all of his high school buddies as they're eating the ox tongue. <laughs> To, <laughs> right. to get on speakerphone and sing her that the song together. And <laughs> I, that is the like if to me, that's one of the there are a couple of elements of, of points in this movie that caused me to sort of spontaneously tear up. Right. I didn't see it coming. I'm the movie is moving at, at a pretty slow pace. And yet then I, I see the way Andy to- Andy Lau sits there and listens and watches his friends sing to, uh, you know, to Otto on speakerphone. And I'm like, oh, my God. That's that's one of those incredibly special moments in in the movie for me that that I think demonstrates the the what he's doing and how he's doing it in a in a little beautiful gem of a of a scene. Well, and and hearing how she 
how obviously all of these things affected her because she can remember their names and these moments. So even as like kids and stuff, they don't really think about, as I was saying, like they don't think about that sort of stuff. It's just, it's there, but it obviously was a part of her life. And it's like, he's realizing how much a part of her life, all of them were. And that I thought was so interesting. And that's why I thought like the moments with the family at the end where she gets to come and, you know, she's still alive as we find out after, uh, you know, she had you know two strokes and emphysema, but she's okay, and she's she survived, and she's with them at Jason's, uh, Roger's brother's um, kids. I, I was assuming it was like first birthday or something. So she obviously mm-hmm. lived a while longer and was around to enjoy them. And and moments where I thought it really stuck that he, you know, he did move past the point where he he just viewed her as a servant and really saw her as part of a family of their family was, you know, he brought her there. And I mean, other people were like, yeah, get in the picture with us. But he's the one who like wheels her in the wheelchair and puts her in the family photo, even though she was like, no, no, no. But it's like he made sure to include her. And uh, and so I, I definitely think that he does stop viewing her that way as a just a servant and really sees her as an integral part of their family. And everything and and so those moments I think are important and uh, you know definitely I think uh, important ones for the film and for the story. I do too, and I think there's a, a the conflict of the film for me is just how she continues to make the case scene after scene not to make a fuss over her that she's done. Like, she's an old lady. Don't worry about it. I want to go to an old folks home. I just want to ride out the end of my life as if she is experiencing like end of life fatigue. Like, she's just, she's done. She does get joy in in those moments. You can tell because Dini Yip is is um, amazing uh, performer. Uh, but uh, I do get a sense that that conflict for her is just like, let me go. Uh, there, there is some of that that let me go. I'm, I'm finished, and that's that was hard to, hard to watch. It's interesting. I don't think I really got her saying I, I'm finished. I got her. You know, I don't know. Again, I think it's the mentality that she's had her whole life of 60 years yeah. being a maid. And right. like she she don't fuss has, over me. It's not my right. job. It's I'm not your the, job. I'm my job is to fuss over you. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what she says to the mom when the mom uh, was talking about how she was, uh, you know, or she I can't remember what it was, but mom came and fussed over her when she had uh, was in the hospital or something. And she's like, well, you're not supposed to do that. That's my job to f- take care of you. And so. Yeah, I think that like she has a hard time um, accepting that sort of thing. Like she has a hard time accepting gifts. She has a hard time accepting money. Uh, you know, uh, you know, unless there's some like sort of reciprocal sort of thing. Like she just has a hard time with that. And and yeah, it's hard for her to be fussed over and be focused on. And um, you know, I think that she probably could have gone to celebrate New Year's with that other family from the nursing home who had invited her to join them. Right. But uh, again, it's just like she doesn't. Instead, she just spends it alone. But I I felt like it was, you know, she felt like I'm the one who's supposed to be sitting here in my room by myself while, you know, making sure that you're out there having fun. And yeah, so I don't know. It's an interesting perspective to kind of get that read from her. Yeah, I think I I do. I I think so. I I think she's 
it 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 is this is what i mean how it it hit me in sort of a complex way it was easy for me to relate to that experience of what she was actually what she was doing i i totally hear what you're saying about that she you know she's she's not the she doesn't want to be fussed over and to me how easy it was to read that as you know she just recognizes that that she's her life is coming to an end and she's doing a, a <laughs> I don't know, wants to try and do sort of a gentle handoff in a way that isn't necessarily satisfying to her. And you you can see this when she goes into the actual elder care system, when she finds, uh, you know, when when Roger finds a place, you know, connected to one of his friends uh, and, and former, it sounds like co-workers, uh, actor in some of his films or something. Uh, ends up going to this place. The entire elder care system is abusive, I think, right? Just in terms of resources that they have available, uh, the way they have have built this system. And I think Hui does an amazing job for me setting up the world inside this facility, the the sort of um, uh, uh, machine based. Uh, I say machines, not what that's not what I mean. Oh, conveyor belt based sort of uh, people on like nurses or caregivers on uh, rolling chairs, feeding people in their seats who can't feed themselves, sliding from one to the next, one to the next, like on a conveyor belt. Like those, those sorts of sequences made it look like not friendly at all. Like it was just very much these people are here at to the end and we're going to you know we're going to do our best and we all recognize that our best isn't really that great i was uh, yeah i was a little um torn with how the film set all that up and played it throughout the film and i guess it's one of those things where over the course of the film you know we get a sense of this is how the system is set up but but in the by the end, I'm like, you know, I, I think there are elements of it that are working the way they are because they need to. Because initially, like when Roger is first talking to the woman there, uh, trying to get a sense of it and looking at a, at a sample bill and all the, and the line items and stuff. And he's just like, you charge for this, you charge for that, you charge for this, you charge for that. Like, what are you what is all the stuff that you're charging for? And she's trying to explain to him. But it it really comes across like, oh, yeah, we are totally taking advantage of all these people for all the money we can. And he seems very suspicious of it and really like changes his tune instantly as soon as he finds out that his old you know you know film friend is running the place and gives him a discount but i'm like well but you're still putting her here and so you're just going to go along with that kind of that kind of abusive type of system what's that saying and i wasn't sure because then she was in it and instantly it seems like she wants out but then all of a sudden she seems really comfortable with it and it really starts seeming like it's okay yes i mean they they may be overcharging all this stuff but they they are actually taking care of the people and everyone seems to be, you know, relatively doing a good, uh, you know, surviving and doing okay. And it's interesting where you start seeing that a lot of people end up in here because their family just doesn't want to deal with them anymore. And sometimes in the case of the brother and sister who are mutually supposed to be taking care of their mother, only the sister ever shows up. Only the sister actually pays her half. And that was an interesting element. There's that woman who the 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 head uh, lady said she's been here since the beginning. We've never seen a person come for her. She's fully subsidized by the government, and and you start realizing that, I mean, it's a system that does 
kind of take advantage of people, but it's also doing a, a good job of actually taking care of these people. And so it was an interesting, I, I wasn't quite sure <laughs> the way that it's set up initially. I'm like, am I supposed to be hating this place or liking it and feeling like it's okay? And I, you know, I wasn't really sure, but I don't know. Did, where was your read on that whole thing? I, I never felt like I liked the place. I, I felt like this was much more of a, a statement on you know, to your point, like this place exists because we have an aging population that is massive here and we don't know any other way to do the kind of stuff that we do because there aren't enough people to take care of the massive number of of people who are who can't take care of themselves. Like we have to like we just we as human beings have not figured out a way to do this humanely and and to do it in a way that doesn't look like our our single rooms are actually cubicles in an office like it 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 just it just doesn't look great and we don't know how to do it any different and and the fact that the two people who who own the place the the husband and wife the friend and the and the woman have no experience in taking care of of the <laughs> right. elderly, right? They just were looking at it as a business opportunity. It's a cash and cow, right? It's a cash cow, <laughs> and their business is good. Um, you know, is a testament to that. And I don't think you know Hong Kong is not uh, <laughs> is not an isolated story here. You you don't have to spit very far to hit a story of these kinds of uh, of facilities springing up all around the world because nobody knows how to take care of the elderly. And because the people who are making those decisions aren't elderly yet, they don't have the level of empathy, sympathy, right, to to actually be that caregiver, the caregiver that they themselves would want in 30, 40, 50 years. And that's that is, I think, uh, a, a statement here. There is no overt abuse of the elderly here, right? It is that the whole system is abusive just the way it exists from, from to my eye right that's that is what i'm what what i walked away with seeing that she was fit into the system it wasn't like she could have necessarily found a better one uh had they just looked further i think it, it sure it was a relationship of convenience because of his relationship with this guy but you know they're six of one half dozen of the other and she just plays her part in the system yeah. Well, and, and again, she's trained to not complain. Exactly. That's kind of her thing. Trained to not complain. But I, it's funny because I never found it abusive other than financially. Like they, they, the, their whole abuse seems to be taking advantage of the people who have to pay the bills. And, uh, but like inside the system, like, I mean, they seemed to be doing a good job of taking care of the people. Like I, I never felt like they were pointing out examples of moments where, people were not getting taken care of properly. Well, what is not being taken care of properly? I mean, it, it just felt like such a such a machine to me that they were just like they might as well have been in the matrix like battery pods, you know, just like plug them in and do this thing. Like there there was not there, there was limited sort of uh, I, I don't know. I just would you want to live there? Like, is that how you want to ride out your days? Because we can, I, we can make that happen. <laughs> Thanks, you're sweet. <laughs> I'm not saying that it's. I, I'm saying in context of you know families who don't want to take care of their elders and are mm -hmm. put into these systems. I, I think that you know they're doing a good enough job. Like it, they they set it up like we put name tags on your stuff, but hey, if it disappears, 
It's not our fault. But nothing ever gets taken. Like, I don't feel like they, yeah. they you know, it, I, like, I don't see actual things happening that made me feel bad. I mean, I see old people who are sad because they are left behind. But, you know, they, they bring in they bring in all these pets for this remedial pet day where all the, the elderly people get to play with animals. They have a, a very strange performance of people who do this performance, give everybody a treat and then take them away because they have to go to somewhere else. But then they have all these kids come in like they're doing things, uh, you know, and, and it's open like people. They can leave and they can come back. Um, it's not like they are trapped in this place. And so I felt like they could have done a lot more to show us a place that felt more abusive. It felt like it's a sad place because people are left here until they die. But I never felt like it was a place that um, was intentionally not taking care of people in a way where, um, you know, they they like I, I hear so many more horror stories of of seniors you know being taken advantage of in these types of places, like left in the rooms, diapers not getting changed, you know, things like that. And this film wasn't about any of that. So I, I felt it was sad, but I didn't feel it was pointing out an abusive system. Well, and that's what I mean. I like I, I that's what I feel like I said that. Like there is no overt abuse in in this movie, but the whole system is uh and and I did I use the word abusive because the whole system is just made to take old people and put them in a machine to make money. No, there was nobody left in a chair. There was nobody like you. You, We never saw anybody not getting their basic needs met. But that's not the way I want to live out the end of my life. Right. Like that is well, a system yeah. under strain to me. And I think that's what she's like, what she's going for here, that this is a this is a system under strain. And it's it is uh, it, it it's not. It is not. It's sad. It's not necessarily kind. And nobody in here. I think that the the woman who is singing is the perfect example of the entire like the entire infrastructure because she's singing. She has a smile on her face. And when she leaves, she walks off the out of the little center to go get a drink. And the look on her face goes from I'm I love what I do to I can't believe I'm here. This is the worst thing i've ever done right it's just you can tell in by the look on her face that she doesn't want to be there nobody wants to be there there's one person who seems like she is a, a caregiver that wants to actually be in in place and i can't remember what her name was but she had the glasses and then she says i kind of would like to go work for uh work for roger right he needs it now that now that the maid is here i would love to go work for him and she's talking to the maid yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I don't know. I I guess I I it's it's a sad place, but it's, you know, I I do feel that it's a part of life and I don't think that it's designed to show abuse as much as you know, it's just it's kind of a the the place that people, you know, end up with. And I guess the story that I find interesting is that, you know, we're really following Otto as she's here. She finds comfort there. You know, she finds friendship there. She, you know, there, it's a it's a place that's for her. It's I mean, it might be a little lonely and things like that, but she really she has Roger coming in. And and I guess that's the thing I find uh, so heartwarming. And obviously other people do, too. The fact that he shows up. I mean, it's not all the time. He's always off making movies and stuff like that. Right. But he shows up and people are always like, you're so lucky to have him coming as often as he does. And and taking her out and treating her well. And that's I mean, really, that's the story is that 
by putting her there in a in a in a way it helps him kind of develop this familial relationship with her where he is kind of taking care of her and helping her out and and you know taking her out to get fish and things like that and like you know doing stuff for her that i found so touching because it really was you know his chance to find that place of kind of connection and warmth with her that he had kind of forgotten i guess yeah yeah and that's that that i think is a is a major sort of theme the the whole sort of family not family that exists in that place the fact that he discovers the you know the just how close he he was to her and didn't even <laughs> didn't even see it while he was under her care as as she was his maid uh, i thought was really special like he sort of comes to term again by the things that he's the things he does not how he's doing it uh, i thought it was really special and again to your point the community that she sort of finds herself in thanks very much to uncle kin has as a weird sort of uh, mooch, <laughs> and yet the guy who creates a lot of spontaneous, just sort of love in the place, yeah. um, I, I think was um, was really great. Like you can you watch those sort of friendships kind of blossom, um, and so again, this exists kind of in in conflict to the world that they're living in. For me, that it is a sad place, and yet they're finding little sprouts of hope, and and I think Hui does an amazing job of presenting these just sort of opposite ends of this particular um, spectrum uh, really well. And I got it again at the very end during the the funeral when Uncle Kin shows up, right? And he goes in to the to the the service and there aren't very many people there and all heads turn and they're all young faces, right? They're all such younger faces. There is, I, I think, one or two uh, elderly people in the front. Um, yeah, but from From the nursing home yeah from the nursing home but he is standing up as this example of like you're all everybody in here is gonna be where i am and where these other two lovely people from the nursing home were and where this person in the box just came from like we are all going there and and, and i think that presents this sort of unspoken central question for me which is how do you want to to you know wrap up the third act of your life like that is for me the the major theme here of how do we want to end like how do we want to end with joy how do we go about finding joy uh in this in in our you know final act that's interesting uh especially in context of the title of the film a simple life and like what what is uh who we really kind of giving us with just by titling the film that is it is it the sense that what Otto really wanted was to have a simple life had she had a simple life this is how you this is you know bringing a simple life to a close is it roger who has the simple life um, or do we all really, in the end, just kind of have a simple life? And, you know, really what it's all about is just trying to find connection and happiness. And, you know, I I found the title as I thought about it. I'm like, it's, it's interesting that that's what it's titled because it, I mean, it's, yeah, I'm not sure if any of us really have anything more than a simple life or more than a complex life. Like, life is life, and it's a very interesting ride that we all go on. But in the end, it is those people uh, at your funeral, like those are the connections that you made, uh, in your life. And, and like, you know, what's, what's it all about, uh, Alfie, right? What's it all about Alfie? Uh. 
not not a great okay. person to bring into the conversation. Yeah, here. probably probably uh, not. But, yeah, <laughs> complex. I know a couple of the things though that I do think are interesting to talk about in relation to um, Roger and being rich and the idea of uh, you know how you treat other people. Something that I felt like was being set up was in context of his relationship with Otto and how he evolved that relationship. I felt like was there going to be learning here because we see him. Um, there's that great scene where he, uh, who is, you know, he's a film producer producing schlocky crap and, um, he's with his, uh, filmmakers trying to get, essentially get more money out of the, one of the financiers and they kind of trick him and then they all go out to eat afterward. And then one of the guys that he's with is just so rude to the wait staff there. Like, I'm just like, God, this is terrible how they are. And later, he essentially is the same way when he takes Otto out for some fish. And he's just not very polite. And I felt like, okay, like, would it have helped me feel like he really did grow more if like later in the film we see him eating and he's a little more kind to the wait staff like I, is that something that that would have helped at all i don't know did you yeah. have any thoughts on on that yeah, as as, as it's played absolutely I, I that that i think is is a great example of i think the the risk of playing the character the the way he played it and the way in this case it was written like he doesn't have an opportunity i think or enough of an opportunity to demonstrate that growth over over time so you have to take i think a lot for for granted that his relationship may be changing under the surface with her specifically but we don't get any indication that that's changing the way he lives his life like yeah, is his that's... somehow a simple life like what do we aspire to based on Roger's portrayal <laughs> or Roger's role in this movie. Yeah. Um, right. You know, right. I, I, I feel like what a great example of it, like the, to get your job done. Like you aspire to be such a, uh, you know, high powered, you know, film executive that you have to resort to those sorts of tricks and shenaniganry to get the job done. Like I, I, I that's, that could be an entirely, you know, that maybe that's the sequel. You know, a simple, a simple, a simple <laughs> well, life. The whole, and it's the, Roger's story. <laughs> then there's the whole scene where he's like berating somebody for not doing something, not getting yeah. like a permit or something properly. And they're like, oh, oh, you got it. Oh, well, never mind that. I just, I misunderstood you. It's all good. <laughs> you know, it's like, geez, right. He's okay. just not very nice. He's not yeah. very nice. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting the way that that plays. But then there's also this whole other element that I think is worth talking about that you wrote in the notes. What does wealth look like? Uh, because as we find out, Roger doesn't dress the part like he doesn't dress like the well-off producer. He and as it turns out, he dresses like an air conditioning repair guy because right. <laughs> Exactly the, like an air conditioning yeah, repair guy. That was which so is funny. Very funny. And then apparently also like a taxi driver, which is funny because someone says, you got to move your, your car is about to be towed. And he's like, do I look like a taxi driver? And then he jokingly <laughs> says, I fix air conditioners, which I thought was great. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's an interesting element to also throw into his life. The fact that here he is, this this guy making movies, but he dresses apparently like, you know, a lower class person. And I found that to be kind of an, another interesting element thrown in here that, I mean, it never really develops into anything. It's just, you know, is it just saying that Roger is one who's more comfortable kind of crossing that line? Because his mother certainly didn't seem to be the sort 
to who is more comfortable with that. But he certainly seemed less concerned about like going and visiting her in her nursing home, things like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I I feel like for him, every day is casual Friday, right? Like he is (laughs) he has reached he's reached a point in his, um, you know, in his career and that, you know, if you know who he is, you know that he the guy can wear. Um, you know, essentially a members only jacket and T-shirt every day if he wants. And that's going to be OK. And no, he doesn't have a briefcase. He has a backpack. And that's just because he is who he is like. And, and so he's sort of wearing his authority in the form of business counter culture. And and that that says it's own, that has its own sort of voice uh, in terms of who his character is, that he doesn't need to care about trappings anymore you know uh i i felt like i i could relate to that like i felt like in some ways he is sort of shunning some of the trappings of of his field and of the sort of relationships that he has to cultivate by dressing essentially like an air conditioner repair guy well what was funny about that and, and again never really developed the way that I thought it would or if they were going to do anything with it is that you see when when the air conditioning guy gets off the elevator and literally they're dressed in the same outfit yeah which was right. was kind of funny he he does for the first time like seem confused concerned surprised and actually seems like he's about to kind of like he unzips his coat like uh, maybe I want to take this off but then it's never like he's wearing it again like he he doesn't change his his kind of right. outfits he he kind of just goes back to it so it was just it was like a momentary recognition but it didn't turn into yeah. something that turned into a change for him well and you do get a sense that he gets some subversive joy out of taking out his business card for the assistant right like <laughs> this is my name card and gives her a second to look at it and see his title and all of that. And that, that is a a guy who is, you know, who's, who's proud of that name card, right? That's, he's, he's looking at his letterpress for, for, um, for that. So I, I don't, he is again, not, not that simple of a guy. And, and maybe that is just yet another indicator that his, you know, his backpack and jacket are, um, you know, confusing symbols of wealth. There are interesting elements in context of this story where, you know, he is, uh, I, I think, in, in, in terms of the blending of class, class structure, uh, you know, I, I don't think that he worries too much. Although he doesn't ever call her his maid to any of the people that he no, uh, right. presents, you know, so. Which um, is, if we stand by our earlier argument, a sign of respect, right, that he personally considers her a member of the family and that he will not, you know. He, he will not tell the truth because that might be a sign of disrespect, right? That's where we landed. I uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think that uh, that initially it felt that way. Like when when they do that, it just felt like it made her in in context of her being in this place. It was more comfortable for her to not be recognized as just a maid. Yeah, um, yeah. So and and those relationships do get closer over the course of the film, right? He goes it goes from maid where he doesn't speak to her, and then when they go outside, it's godmother, and then it becomes aunt. Like those yeah. those are closer relationships over yeah. time. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, and their conversations really. I mean, they turn into feeling very familial. Like they're they're jokingly, you know, trying to hook each other up with different people and things like that. Like it it really does become very intimate uh, yeah. family connection. And that's and that's, I think, the strength that where you find that strength in their relationship throughout the film, it, you know, 
that's where you see the growth is the way that they're having their conversations uh, as we get toward the end of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I liked it. What do you think of Anne Hui? Have you seen a bunch of other Anne Hui stuff? No, this is my first Anne Hui. So again, I'm, I'm looking forward to jumping into this series to uh, kind of check more of her films out. I was excited to see that the Criterion Collection recently announced that they're going to be releasing Boat People. One of the films we'll be discussing in this series. Of course, it'll be after we've recorded the episode, but still, I'm glad to see that she's, uh, you know, she's getting more recognition now. So it'll be nice to see. Um, I enjoyed the way she directed the film. Very still shots. I mean, there's movement, but a lot of the shots are very just composed still shots interesting positioning of the people within the frame as we're kind of viewing them in their world i really enjoyed that when we jump into roger's life it's a little more movement a little more handheld shaky sort of stuff and so i really enjoyed that that feel that we get throughout the throughout the film just the way that she's kind of crafting this in very carefully yeah i i did too i felt like the that first scene in, in sort of the opening montage of roger moving through the city there's a, a part where he's kind of sleeping in a chair in like a train station yeah and the the way the shot is framed it's isolated on this giant mural on the wall in this train station and he is off to the lower left corner of the frame and i i was like viscerally struck by that shot like it, it just and it, it it was like oh oh and hui uh, is going to be somebody to pay attention to for me. Like this is, she's a capable uh, filmmaker with quite an eye for the simplest shots, making them, you know, really taking into account size and space uh, in a way to to really catch the eye and and demand attention. And uh, I thought that was, uh, it was just made for a really fascinating ride, taking the most simple elements of cooking food, of, um, you know, these these gestures of what ultimately are gestures of love, right? Cooking food and preparing food and, and you know, having brief conversations about the choices of what kind of food. Do you want another angioplasty? I like that line a lot, right? You're not going to eat the ox tongue because you've already had a heart attack. Like, we're, we're going to make sure that you live a long, healthy life. You know, all of the way she captured that on film, I thought was really special. I, I thought it was great. I can't wait to to see more of her stuff. I loved the moment where uh, Roger's mom visits and she's staying in his place and, uh, you know, she's complaining from her bed. Can you turn it down? It's really loud. And he had been kind of, he had kind of fallen asleep on the couch. And then she's right. asking, like, he starts looking at the paper. Do you have to turn the pages so loud? And he's trying to do it <laughs> quietly. And she's just constantly complaining. She asks him something else. And what does he do? He brings some tea to her. And I, I loved this moment because he brings tea to her. He's like, I'm sorry, it's probably not as, it's, you know, some hot tea. It's probably not as good as what Otto would have made for you, but here's some tea for you. Yeah. And she's like, oh, thanks. And she tastes it and they kind of smile at each other. And then he leaves the room and shuts the door. Like very, I was like, God, that was a brilliant way to like not piss mom off just by shutting her door. He's yeah. going to bring her something. But then as he goes, he just kind of quietly shuts the door. I'm like, that was really <laughs> like Beautiful. one of the most clever things that I've seen where he can kind of separate himself from his mother in a way where um, he's not doing anything offensive. I just loved that moment. Well, and and I think you can make the case the way Fu Li Wang as, as Roger's mother plays that that scene that she knows she's being played a little bit right as soon as he brings up Otto's tea uh they they have kind of a knowing exchange that 
he's he's trying to make her bedtime more peaceful, just the way Otto would when he is when he was acting up as a child or or something yeah. like that. Like yeah. I, I felt like she knew it, and and because he's so gentle with it, it was all right. So she was dubbed, and I was wondering. I I, I know there are a number of different uh, kind of languages that we see spoken throughout the film. We you know have moments where Otto tries to talk to somebody at the premiere party but they don't speak mandarin and so it's like all these different languages that were kind of thrust out but it was interesting to see that uh the actress who played mom must have just spoken a different language and they um had her do her best and then they just dubbed her later and yeah one of those things that i notice sometimes and you know when it's an italian film and everybody's getting dubbed i don't mind it so much but it's always throws me off a little bit where it's just the one person who's getting dubbed it's like it's the lips are never quite right but yeah it was all right. yeah well, and and I think it was it was Cantonese. It was the other way. Um, oh, because okay. the whole movie was in Cantonese. Sure, uh, sure, sure. And and I wonder Mandarin, yeah. if she if she spoke Mandarin. And yeah, and that was yeah. a, an issue. Just to and like why after we've just watched this movie, you know, Zindagi Namalega Devara, <laughs> if you don't with mind that. me saying, uh, <laughs> that that is so just sort of flamboyant with its use of multiple languages. It's a little bit jarring to see them go the extra mile to dub one character. Maybe others, I wasn't paying that close attention, but you're right, she did stand out to me. Yeah. There were a couple questions that I had um, that I just wasn't sure. There was a moment where, and it was right after Otto first kind of moves into the place, and I thought, literally, that she was, it was the middle of the night, and she was breaking out. Like, that's the sense that the scene plays as. And she goes into a room, and she stuffs tissues up her nose. Uh, what was going on there? Was, <laughs> I have no idea. I was like, is this, like, the morgue? Like, where are we here? Like, I yeah. just could not, for the life of me, figure out what was happening. Because it's the it's the same room she goes through later, where we end up finding out that um, the mom of the brother and sister ends up collapsing before she gets taken out. And but nobody was plugging their nose at that point. So I just I didn't understand. And I was like, am I missing something here? So you didn't get it either. Well, I the only thing I thought about was that, you know, maybe just the smell of the elderly community is different than she is accustomed to. And she was having trouble adjusting to it because, you know, I mean, there's a lot going on in those places and maybe it just didn't smell great. but but I do think that that actually gets to a couple of of points of just straight up filmmaking that I thought were interesting choices in the movie. And one was that one where I thought she was going to escape. That was a nice little sort of visual setup and and that she wasn't. There was another one where, you know, they, they showed close ups of bag packing and uh, all, all kinds of stuff, you know, that ultimately is somebody else saying, I'm getting out of here, I'm getting out of here. And she and Uncle, it gives Uncle Kin an opportunity to come and and care for them. And both times, <laughs> both times that she has her strokes, the way it was shot made it feel very much like she was dead. That it was both times I was completely surprised that they didn't, that that she was alive still. And and it worked for me ultimately, but those little sort of those sort of emotional like it made it more of an emotional roller coaster. That little dopamine jolt of oh my god, I have to feel something now. Oh wait, no, I don't. It's okay. She's still alive. Um, it that was that was wicked Trixie and Huey. I I thought likely how it feels when somebody that you love is going through that. It's like oh my god, they just died. 
oh, no, they're actually alive. Like, you just don't know. And it's that it's that fear that you go through in those moments of, of did I just lose this person? Yeah. So, totally. yeah. Yeah. Um, what did you think of, of uh, Roger's decision at the end when she's in the hospital and he leaves her to die alone um, and says, just if she dies while I'm gone, just put her in the morgue. Like, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because that doesn't that like paint that Roger in that place of like, oh, I, I really maybe he hasn't learned anything at all, uh, although I like I don't know what I would have done any differently. I found myself sort of ruminating on that. Like uh, that is a it's absolutely in character for Roger not to to stick around. But would I have done anything different? Uh, I don't I don't know. It's a tricky thing. Like I I saw him, you know, he was with her all that time, but this was totally different. She was unconscious. Like she was not coming out of this place that she was in, likely uh, you know, was in the hospital's version of uh uh hospice care, you know, just you know, they had her on medicine, they had her on machines, she was just kind of there but not there and he would go in and he would hold her hand and he would be there with her and stuff but she wasn't it's not like when she was with the priest the the previous time you know it's it wasn't that sort of time like she just wasn't there and so yeah i was torn like gosh what do you do i mean he he was you know putting off this production that he needed to get back to he needed to fly back over to the mainland so that he could jump in onto this production for a week before he could get back and so i don't know it was a tricky it was a tricky decision, I guess, to have to make for anybody. Well, and and you you sort of get the sense that that statement at the end, he is saying like I've been, I've been sort of prepared for this or preparing for this for a long time. Like we've 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 been at the end before, and now it the reality is set in that there's there's nothing more I can do. There's nothing more we can do. We're just waiting. They already kind of had their goodbyes. Like, uh, you know, yeah. she had had her second stroke. I mean, he was pushing her around in a wheelchair, strapped in. Like, she had to be strapped yeah. into the wheelchair to push her around. Yeah, I, I, I felt like she was ready to go. And mm-hmm. I felt like he had been with her enough to know that she was ready now. And yeah. that this was, like, she wasn't coming back. He said his goodbyes. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a tough one though. It's a it's a tough decision to have to make. So I feel like he still did learn and grow, but it is one of those difficult things where you have to hit a point where it's like I I have to move on. Well, and and uh, again, so much of this I think is comes from a place of like cultural interpretation or cultural relationship with death that it it's hard for me to rationalize his actions because there is a lot tied up I think in you know death in china and in that part of china and that though that family and uh stuff that that i just you know same way i don't eat a lot of ox tongue i also don't have the same relationship with with death and dying that that they do what did you think of the very last bit so she's gone there was the funeral we see him walking back to his place. He looks up to the, his flat. The lights are on. We cut inside and we see her kind of bustling about in there and almost like she's going to hide from him or something. Uh, any thoughts on the way that that was played? And then this was also over the credits, essentially. Yeah, it was over the credits. I don't know. I sort of wrote that. Like, until you brought it up, I had totally 
forgotten that it existed in the thing. I thought it was weird. I didn't care for it. Like, it, what is it saying? That she is just sort of her spirit is always going to be there and she'll always be watching. That is an, a, a like legit anxiety for me that my, you know, long dead grandmother watches me when I, you know, do stuff I shouldn't do. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, okay, sure. I just ate a whole bag of Oreo cookies and you might've seen me pick my nose. What do you want from me, grandma? Like that, that's the kind of stuff that just really causes me a, a, a fit. So I don't know. Did you, did it, did it work for you? I suppose it was one of those moments where it's like the end of Thelma and Louise, where, you know, you see memory moments of them driving around and stuff. And so I felt like it was more just him remembering the good moments of her and like the moment, the feeling that he had when he was coming home and she was there and things like that. So I felt like it was just his memories and his mind creating those things and the, you know, less less thinking that she her spirit lives on more just remembering the good times or remembering the times period and reminding himself that you know he might not have been focusing on them at all but they still made them special to him i was just going to say that like remembering the good times of you know when she would make me food and then stay out and, of the way that, and i would ignore her right <laughs> <laughs> Sounds, it's a really charming uh, relationship that they captured on film. <laughs> oh, my, my, my. Yeah, so Anne Hui, um, she wrote, or no, she co-wrote this, I believe, with Roger Lee, who who came up with the story. And the way that it sounds like, um, he started developing these fragments of this, and she liked it, and and said, you know, keep let keep developing this, and until it was enough for a screenplay for them to kind of work on together and kind of develop, which I thought was really cool. And and interestingly, they picked Andy Lau and Dini Ip because they actually because Ip is actually Andy Lau's godmother, which I thought was fantastic, <laughs> and they had acted a number of times before. And uh, and I think this was their return to act together after like 25 years or something um, uh, apart, like they hadn't acted together in all that time. And so it was it was a nice time, a nice opportunity for the two of them to get together and, um, you know, work in the same film again, which is, you know, I thought that was very cool. I did, too. And I, I felt like their relationship, there was nothing about their relationship in, in this movie that was inauthentic at all. I think just as as performers, they were really, really great together. And she is superlative. I so enjoyed everything she did on screen. Yeah, she plays it well. I had just a wonderful time with both of them. I thought um, the two of them really brought a lot of charm and you could feel their connection. And that's what I think worked so well in this film is that I always felt like there was an authentic history between the two of them. And like those moments also, like when he's talking to his sister and, and the whole story about the Coke and stuff, I'm like, I like all of that just felt so honest and real. Like I, I just bought all of it. It's great. I did too. I mean, I don't have a sister, so I don't really know if that was legit. You would, you would know better <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't be able to compare because uh, my parents were never into giving either of us cokes. So, <laughs> oh right, no, it was all kombucha. I'll bet you're a big kombucha <laughs> I, head. I don't think kombucha was a thing back then. <laughs> but... <laughs> oh my! All right. Um, any last thoughts about this one before we kind of move move on to the no, rest? No, let's it? power. Let's power through. All right. Well, we will be right back, everybody. But first, our credits. 
The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Balloon Planet, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. How to do an award season, Andy? This film did well for itself, uh, particularly in the uh, the film the awards over in Asia. This had thirty eight wins, twenty seven other nominations. It started. It actually debuted at the Venice International Film Festival, where Anne Hui and the film won the Equal Opportunity Award, the Gianni Astre Award, the Nazarino Today Award, and it was had an, received an honorable mention for the Cygnus Award. Also, Dini Ip won the Volpe Cup for Best Actress, and she was actually the first Hong Konger to do so, which is uh, pretty cool. The film also was nominated for the Golden Lion, but and Hui uh, lost that to the film Faust. At the Asian Film Awards, um, again, Dini Ip won Best Actress uh, and was the first Hong Konger to win this award as well. And Andy Lau won the Favorite Actor, which is kind of the people's choice. And Hui also became the first woman to win a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Asian Film Awards. It was also nominated for Best Actor, but Lau lost to Donnie Damara in Lovely Man. And Dini Ip was nominated for Favorite Actress, uh, but lost to Eugenie Domingo in Woman in the Septic Tank, which is <laughs> quite the title. <laughs> I know. At the Hong Kong Film Awards, it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Actress. And Hui has now won that director award four times more than any other director. And Ip was actually the oldest actress to win the award. She was 64 at the time she won the award. Paul Chun, who played the uh, who played Uncle Kin, he was nominated for supporting actor, but lost to Hoi Pang Lo in Life Without Principle. And Hai Lu Chin was nominated for supporting actress. She was the head of the uh, of the nursing center. She lost to Hang Shuen So in Life Without Principle, and cinematography lost to the film Dragon. And at the Hong Kong Film Critic Society Awards, uh, one Best Actress in Film nominated uh, Hai Lu Chin for actress, but she lost to Ip. And Hui lost director to Wen Jiang for Let the Bullets Fly, and they lost the screenplay to Life Without Principle. So, you know, but I mean, still, you know, 38 wins overall. They did a really good job uh, with this film. It, it struck a chord with people. I would love to see the back-to-back, like, double feature of A Simple Life and Let the Bullets Fly. I, I wonder where the <laughs> similarities are in that movie, those two movies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how to do at the box office. Hui's film cost 30 million yen, or $5.4 million, which is $6.2 million in today's dollars. The movie premiered, as I said, at the Venice International Film Festival, then opened in Hong Kong September 23, 2011. It continued a slow festival and theatrical release, eventually opening in limited release in the U.S. on April 13, 2012, opposite The Three Stooges, Cabin in the Woods, and Lockout. The movie would go on to earn 192000 domestically and just over $6 million internationally for a total gross of just over $7 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $7.7,000. All right, well, that's something. It's nice to see a small sort of adult film that actually... You Not know, an adult film. Makes some know, money every film. minute. Not an adult <laughs> film, but a film for... yeah, about That's a totally different uh, nursing home story. Uh, 
uh, yeah, it's a very different nursing home story. <laughs> All right. Uh, I loved it. I thought it was a great way to almost kick off our Anne Hui series and almost wrap up our 10-year anniversary series. And curse you, Arthur Christmas, for <laughs> ruining this segue. Uh, but it was it was a, a great uh, a great watch. Yeah, it was definitely a great film. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and just as a note, I didn't I, I didn't have this information yet, but I'll just say it now. This film marked the 10th collaboration be- between IP and Lau. They first started together in The Unwritten Law in 1985. Well, was this the last collaboration between Ip and Law? I don't have that information in front of me either. I, I wish that I did. I guess we'll never know. Oh, and last last little bit of information. Anne Hui, you know, as I said, she started making films in the late 70s. She actually was considering retiring and having this be her last film. However, the film was so successful that she changed her mind and has been working steadily since. So um, great to know that this film kind of pushed her to keep going. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, it was a great film. I am thrilled that we um, added it to our list of films that we've talked about. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. So we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here is the trailer for next week's movie, Arthur Christmas. My friend doesn't believe in you, but I think you are real. But how do you get around all the children in the world in one night? Dear Gwen, do believe in Santa. He is real. If you've ever wondered how it could all be true, the mystery will finally be revealed. Operation Santa Claus is coming to town. Go, go! Engage rooftops. Ho, ho, ho. One four seconds per household. Let's pick this up, people. Mission accomplished. What happens in going down the chimney? Never did me any. <laughs> From Sony Pictures Animation and Artman, meet the family who makes Christmas happen. Here's to me doing an even better job next year. Santa's the boss. That turkey did more than him. <laughs> Steve's The Brains. Revised drop time to 14.13 seconds. I'd love an espresso. And then there's Arthur. I just want it to be perfect for every kid. But this Christmas... There's been a glitch. Oh, dear. There's one small problem. A child's been missed! You want to wake up the whole North Pole? Good idea. A child's been missed! Arthur! Who cares about one single child? (gasps) She'll think she's the one kid in the whole world that Santa doesn't care about. Do you know, Arthur, there is a way. Well, you're coming too, lad. Me? On that? Up there? Pulled by them? Dasher! Dancer! What are the others called? I could never really remember. Bambi? I'm not really good with big animals. This November, the last person anyone believed in... Why is Arthur out there? ...is the only one... Reporting for duty, Stowaway. Who can save the holiday? Just stand back. It doesn't matter how we got here. Wow! As long as she still believes. <laughs> Arthur Christmas. How do you think he's uh... fine? Fine. No child left behind. All right, Andy. Let's letterbox it. Did I? Did I get it right? Did you come in at four stars? 
this is a tricky one because it's one of those quiet films that you watch and go, okay, okay. But it sits, it's been sitting with me and I have been really kind of stewing on it a bit uh, since I watched it and trying to gauge where I feel with the way that the story, like the just the, the way that it unfolded and where it took me. I'm torn between four and four and a half stars. Hmm. I think I'm going to go four, but it could be something that moves up later in life. Wow. Okay. I, I'm, I'm with you on most of it. Like, I, I think you said all the things that I would say, but you came in probably a star too high if he were at four and a half it'd be a star too i think i could probably land at three and a half stars and and be really happy with that Uh, there were moments that were enormously emotionally effective to me the performances were all great i really like their relationships we've said it all and i also think that i i could very well be done uh watching this movie i don't know that i'm going to come back to it um there are a lot of movies to watch and so you know I might just have to watch Red Notice again. <laughs> kidding, kidding. Um, so I, I think I'm at three and a half stars, and it, it and and we'll see. We'll see if that sticks. Is there a heart? Oh yeah, sure. Three sure, and a half sure. a heart. Okay. Yeah, I'll okay. give it a heart. Yeah, absolutely. All right, a heart. That, that was, it was good. It was fine. Okay. Well, that's where we sit, everybody. What did you? think about a simple life we want to know hop into the show talk channel over in our discord community where we will be talking about this film this week when the movie ends our conversation begins letterbox giveth andrew as Letterboxd always doeth. Oh, people like this movie. Uh, and also, some people get it confused with Paris Hilton. <laughs> Ugh, gross. Uh, I have a four-star from Invincible Asia from June 4th, 2017, that I just think it's sweet, and it captures uh, a lot of, of what we've just talked about. Uh, Invincible Asia says, an absolutely beautiful film that loves and respects its characters and gives Dini Yip and Andy Lau all the space and opportunity they need to make this something special. Hardly has aging been depicted as graceful yet simple and full of warmth as here. That's lovely. Yeah, very sweet. That's very sweet. What do you got? Well, I have a four star by Cohen who has this to say. I hope Andy Lau will be there to take care of me when I'm old. <laughs> a little bit. I do, too. Yeah, I think we all bit. do, really. I think right. we all do. A little bit. <laughs> Thanks, Letterboxd. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been, like, decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore, either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we are going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 11, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. 
Oh, our big 10th anniversary season featuring all female directors. Let's do this. All right, here we go. Horror debuts. I'm already stumped. Oh, wait, uh, The Lure. Wasn't that based on The Little Mermaid? It was. Nice. Very loosely, at least. Um, how about 10th anniversaries? Hmm. That's a tough one. So 2011 films. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Yep. That was it. Spike Lee's member bonus. Another biopic. Malcolm X. Nice. We have covered a lot of great movies that started as books, plays, even comics. Sources like Awakenings, Wild at Heart, The Virgin Suicides. Queen of Katwe or Clueless. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. (laughs) 